Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, and Inside Track co-host... Eb Wilkinson. ...coming to you live from the ultra-modern KVOI Broadcast Complex in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks for tuning in to a special Home Waters edition of Inside Track. We have another great show for you today. In a few moments, we'll be talking to former AZ GOP chair, former RNC treasurer, Randy Pullen, who has been one of the leaders in the now-completed Maricopa County 2020 election audit. The regime media is not reporting the real story. Randy will elaborate on what you need to do when we visit together. Our guest for the entire second half of the show is journalist and author John McLean on his sequel to his father Norman McLean's book, A River Runs Through It. John McLean is an award-winning reporter, uh, has been at the Chicago Tribune, and author whose book follows the McLean family saga, including so many things we did not learn in the movie about his family, like what really did happen to Uncle Paul. John's book, Home Waters, will make you want to buy a copy. This portion of Inside Track is brought to you by my, by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and his partner, Gary Imus, from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend upon Socialist Security. Call Eb at 777 1911, and let him help you also. Before Eb and I speak with friend of the show, Randy Pullen, I have a few thoughts to share with you on Constitution Day, which was celebrated earlier this week. One of the most important things that distinguishes America from most of the rest of the world is our Constitution. This past week, we celebrated Constitution Day. I want to talk about Article 4, Section 1 on the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Let me start by saying I have been vaccinated to help protect me from the China virus and so have the adult members of my family and our extended family. It was important to us to protect ourselves from the virus, but local and national government forcing others to vaccinate against their will for a flu virus which has a relatively low lethality is a dangerous thing. Is it constitutional for any level of government to mandate that any class of Americans be vaccinated against their wishes in order to travel, enter a building, to work, to defend our country, protect our cities and states, to care for our children, the elderly, or the infirmed against their will? Is it legal to force military members to get vaccinated against their will in violation of their contract to serve? As I have said, to, as I happen uh, to support vaccination with our family, and so do most of our friends, um, but uh, think about this for a second. In almost every ad we've heard on TV or see in print for, for new pharmaceuticals, don't you, don't you remember seeing there's a long list of health warnings for side effects? You've seen all of them. We see similar warnings when we pick up prescriptions at a drugstore. In fact, it's a law. Let me ask you this. 
Have you ever heard an ad for the China virus vaccine hyping from Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, or any other that comes with such warnings? I'll answer that question for you. The answer is no. No such warnings are made. I participated in the Moderna trials just over a year ago. I was advised of future possible risks, but took part anyways. And in my case, I haven't suffered any ill effects. What is the value of the full faith and credit of the United States of America when not only do we get incorrect information from U.S. governmental agencies like the FDA and the CDC, and they represent the vaccines, which I'm happy to have had available in in the beginning, as, quote, safe and reliable. In every one of their millions of PSAs, when they really have very little idea about the reliability or the safety of these vaccines on a long-term basis. And by the way, there is immunity against lawsuit for pharma and the federal government. Is that proper? Is that safe? How does this affect our country's full faith and credit to serve us? Hence, isn't it the full faith and credit of the United States of America, which is at further risk if the president's plan to max vax Americans is pushed by either an executive order or by Congress? As I've said before, and I've said it many times, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But I believe in the strength of our U.S. Constitution. And this is rule of law we are talking about. Your health and the future of America's health, America's rule of law and the full faith and credit of the United States of America is at risk. This is something we cannot ignore. Let America return to a state of normalcy in health and in the return of reason by our elected officials soon. Mr. Producer, let's uh, go to our first break. When we return, Randy Pullen joins us to give us the real story about the 2020 Maricopa County election audit. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. 
You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that one family at a time with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Eb here along with Bruce. This portion of today's show brought to you by our friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They've got some of the best steel products out there right now in stock, ready to help you with your next project. Call Jamie and Gary and her Steel Pro Craig Beach at 209-1576. Listen to what their customers say about Jamie and her team. Great place for surplus metal needs and a helpful staff, and they had what I needed at a good price. And a big shout-out to Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. Summer rains bring weeds, and boy, did I get them, to your home or business. Listen what uh, Kayla said about the weed crew at Essential. Great service, great prices. Essential's been treating my yard for the past three years. Initially, I was told it would reduce weeds by 60 to 70%, but it worked better than that. I love not having to pull weeds. So do like Bruce, do like me, call the Essentials or call the Essential Pros at Essential Pest, 886-3029. These are two great locally owned, family-run businesses you can depend on. Bruce and I do, so should you. You know, Eb is much better at doing those voice commercials than me. (laughs) I would have had about eight uh, flubs in that period of time. Along with the phone number. (laughs) How many times did you have to talk about oh, Jamie and stop it, stop Gary before you got that right? <laughs> okay, come on. Get to our first guest. We will. Hey, okay, on to our first guest, Randy Pullen, longtime GOP leader and one of the managers of the now-completed Maricopa County 2020 election audit. Hey, welcome, Randy. Hey, good to be here. Hey, according to the Let regime me. media... The lead story coming out of Maricopa County election audit was that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by an even greater number of votes than was previously reported. And that's their story. But that's not the real story, is it? No, no, it's not. And and it ain't over yet. OK, uh, as the uh, presentation yesterday showed, there are a lot of questions that have not been answered by the supervisor or by the election department. And they need to uh, cooperate to get this thing over with. And we're also getting more data. We're also going to be able to uh, see what what happened on the routers during the election, as well as the spunk logs. So we'll be able to see all that. And that will uh, show whether or not there was real access. I mean, that will be factual evidence that there was access to the EMS servers during the election. What's a spunk log? A spunk log is basically where you're tracking all of the addresses that uh, came into the 
uh, the router. So it's where it's where it comes from. So you can go back and see who's doing it and where is it coming from. So why is it so important to understand that not having control of the data from the election software is so dangerous to our republic? <laughs> because that means the data can be changed if they can access the EMS servers, uh, which are the main servers that have all the the election results on it. I mean, the the, uh, the voter records are there in terms of how the vote was cast. Uh, you know, so it's the cast vote record that shows all the, the data, and those things can be changed. And I'm not saying they were. I'm just saying the only way you know if that could have happened possibly could have happened is you get access to that information which we're not getting we, we don't have it but they've agreed to, to, to provide it now okay and it's going to be done uh uh essentially i don't know if you've heard how this was going to happen no why don't you elaborate but, on uh, that okay so the former congressman john shattuck is going to be the master of that and the, the reason that is is again the county is saying that there's very sensitive information on that router that had nothing to do with the election that has to do with the sheriff's office and other things. Okay, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But the reality is that, so he's going to oversee the checking of all those logs and the routers. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, that means you have to have uh, IT network experts come in and do that. Okay, now we have one. I mean, it's pretty clear from the, the meeting yesterday that Ben Cotton from Cypher is a white hat hacker and he knows all this kind of stuff and he brought forth all kinds of information and possibilities showing that data was deleted before files were handed over to us uh and there's so there's a lot of questions so uh you will hire so two or three it network specialists will be selected to actually go through and look at all that information and uh Again, there will be oversight from the Senate on that. So now this is going to be paid for by the county, okay? But the Senate has oversight. So what that means is that if they pick an IT network expert to come in and do this that the Senate doesn't agree with that shouldn't be doing it, he won't be or she won't be hired, okay? So it's going to have to be IT network experts that are acceptable to the Senate, that will do that analysis. There'll, there'll be oversight from Ben Cotton from Cypher on what they're doing. He won't be accessing anything directly, but the, the plan that they put into place and the process they go through, he'll oversee that and understand whether or not that's appropriate. You know, so that's going to go on, and that's probably going to start happening uh, next week or the following week. We're speaking with Randy Pullen. Randy's been a leader in the um, Maricopa County 2020 election audit. Thanks for appearing on such short notice, Randy. Um, the headlines from the last 24 hours seem mostly trying to control the narrative to reinforce that uh, anti-Republican bias that exists uh, mainly in the media. Headlines like GOP-led review of Arizona ballots reaffirms Biden's win. Truth is truth. Trump dealt blow as America, excuse me, as Republican-led Arizona. That's from Reuters. Right. Arizona election audit confirms widened, uh, Biden's win. That's NPR. Curiously, Randy, it was only AZ Central that said in their headline, 
Arizona Senate leaders confirm Biden win, but call for further review of election procedures. So tell our listeners why the regime media is so fixated on reinforcing the message Biden won, Trump lost, but not the underlying problems that have been uncovered and actually have been known for a long time uh, with this election. Well, you're being very calling them uh, what you did. I would call them the lame street media. Okay. Uh, and again, there was a time we called them reporters, but they're not reporters anymore. They're regurgitators. They story that they're out there selling. They're selling their story, making money, and they want something that's going to attract, uh, you know, clicks and and make them money. And that's what they're doing these days. And uh, I appreciate the Arizona Republic at least uh, did mention that there's going to be more going on, and that's a good point for them. Uh, but I, I've read most of the things you've been talking about, Bruce, and it's just very frustrating when you see that. Hmm. Because, what again, what they are are totally leaving out is that there were so many anomalies shown in the report, if you, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the reports that yet. posted out there. Talk about yeah. some of those anomalies. Well, again, uh, just going through the envelopes, as you could see that that as Dr. Shiva went through the envelopes, that there's all kinds of discrepancies in the envelopes: uh, duplicates, two, three, four duplicates. Uh, you and you start picking out all the duplicates that they sent us and all the ballots. Uh, and then all of a sudden we have, we're showing less votes than they're showing. Okay. And so again, it's uh, the only way to get to the bottom of this. Uh, that's just one example. There's plenty of examples uh, in the presentation and the reports. And you can get those reports off azsenaterepublicans.com. There's a button on tab on it that says audit. You click on that, and you can get the presentations and all the reports. So Maricopa County Supervisor Steve Chukri uh, resigned this past week. I suspect he probably figured he'd likely lose a 2024 primary. That's my opinion, uh, not necessarily uh, news. Uh, I personally would encourage a vigorous Republican effort to take out uh, his other Republican colleagues at the Maricopa County Supes. Can you talk about the ways GOP supervisors made the audit more difficult to conduct? well, first of all, let me let me just say I I know Chukri personally, uh, and we had discussions back before the audit ever began, and he wanted an audit. He understood that there was uh, problems and issues in the way they had run the election, and he was supportive of it. But then again, as you can see, uh, that all turned and flip flopped all around. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so reality here is that and now I'm talking as a, as a former audit partner with Deloitte and Touche, and I've done plenty of audits, public companies, private companies, uh, and forensic audits. And in fact, where I worked with lawyers directly every day when we were compounding the data and bringing it together to make it presentable in court. So I understand how all this stuff works. And by obstructing the audit and not assisting in that, that makes it almost impossible to do an audit, quite frankly. 
in in the world of financial auditing, if I walked into a bank, which I had done in the past, and they had said to me, we're not going to help you, we're not going to give you any information, I would have just picked up the phone. It wouldn't have been a cell phone then, a regular phone. And I would have called, and they would, the FBI would have come in and arrested them. Okay, now we, we're in a situation where these supervisors aren't assisting. It raises all kinds of questions uh, that that could have been answered. Some of them could have been answered, and some of them they would have seen were problems. And it would have progressed that way, and we would have come to a result. Okay, but we can't do that because they're not cooperating. So in the world of auditing, uh, you know, a, a an unqualified opinion, I mean, we did all the work and everything looked fine, and we think that the election results are, are accurate, okay? And that would be what they would like to have us do, and that's what the two audit firms that came in, at least they call them audit firms, that did their work, and those weren't audits. I reviewed what they did. That would never be considered an audit in the world of auditors, okay? Uh, but and then there would be a qualified opinion where you found some problems, but everything still looked okay. And then then you get to something in the accounting world. It's called an adverse opinion, which means that everything you looked at didn't look good, and you weren't given the information you needed to do the audit work. Okay, and then there's also another one. It's called the disclaimer of opinion, which just basically says, you know, guys, we tried to do the audit, but we just couldn't get the information we needed to perform the audit, therefore we're just disclaiming it. In this case, based on what went on with the supervisors, if I had to issue an audit opinion on this, it would be a disclaimer of opinion. Mm, yeah. Okay? So what that means is we're, we didn't get down to the final results because we didn't get all the information we needed. It wasn't provided to us. They didn't answer our questions, and believe me, Plenty of questions were put to them, which they didn't answer. Randy, we've got to, we've got to wrap this up, uh, get to our bottom of the hour break, but just one quick question before we let you go. Um, the appointment of John Shattuck as uh, a master, uh, a good thing or a bad thing? I think it was a reasonable solution. Uh, the, the Senate was come with it. Uh, Again, it really what it comes down to, Bruce, is the sensitivity of the router. Some of the, the information they say is on there that, uh, you know, they have to be careful about. So, and that being the case, that's the way they wanted to handle it. And the bottom line is if we get down to what we need to see in terms of what's their access to the uh to the tabulators as well as the EMS system, then, then once we know that, then it calls everything into question. It calls the whole Dominion system into question. And we don't have enough time to talk about the Dominion as as far as what was going on. But once we get through all those routers and the, uh, the spunk logs, then it will be very interesting to talk about what Dominion was doing during the election. Randy, thank you very much. More to follow uh, on this topic and uh, a very serious uh, amount of work that's been done. Thanks for thanks for being in, involved in this. It was a vital uh, uh, task to, to help the integrity of our election. Mr. Producer, let's go to our bottom of the hour break. When we return, journalist and well-regarded author John McLean joins us to talk about his beautiful new book about the McLean family saga and so much more in home waters stay tuned inside track we'll be right back I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson iron and metal retail to inside track as an advertiser 
Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Back to Inside Track. Before we get to our very special guest, John McLean, author of his newest book, Home Waters, now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project before the holidays. No supply chain problems on cabinets being available at Corazon. Joy and Allie have their 6,000 square foot warehouse stacked to the rafters with beautiful cabinets ready now for your next home improvement project. Call Monday and speak to the design professionals from Corazon at 488-2266. As you could tell, because we never play bumper music on this show, we're taking a much needed break from politics and the 24-hour news cycle to talk with a man whose family is well known to millions and the place uh, the, the McLean clan occupies within our American spirit. Our special guest for the remainder of the show today is author and award-winning journalist John McLean. John has written many books about fighting wildfires. Uh, he's worked for many years at the Chicago Tribune covering local, uh, national, and international stories. Our guest has written what I guess has been referred to as the backstory to his father Norman McLean's much-beloved book a river runs through it john's book home waters has been favorably described by many but listen to one review i especially think is appropriate home waters is a lyrical companion to his father's classic chronicling their family's history and bond with montana's blackfoot river storytelling from the fishing with his dad to the life and death of his uncle paul is reliable 
elegant, and charming. Welcome to Inside Track, John. Well, thank you for uh, having me, and thank you for that nice introduction. Mm, my pleasure. Both my co-host, Eb, and I have read Home Waters from front to back. And, and great, great and, book. And we enjoyed it immensely. We've been looking forward to our chat for some time. You've just returned from the, the McLean family rustic cabin at Sealy Lake in Montana. How was your visit, and how was the fishing? Uh, the visit was busy. Uh, I was basically doing a book flog from Montana to Wyoming uh, with several stops along the way. Uh, but I did get in some fishing, uh, and it was uh, it's what it usually is on the Blackfoot. It's funny that the worse the weather, the better the fishing. Yeah. Uh, and then that seems to be the case all the time. When there isn't a cloud in the sky, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fish are down hiding under the rocks, and they don't want to come up. Yeah. So, John, when you're fishing, this is Ab here. When you were fishing, do you have a go-to fly for the Blackfoot? Uh, the Blackfoot used to be about a three-fly uh, river. You needed a one dry, and parachute atoms would work fine, or a, a caddis. Uh, you needed a, something that imitated a grasshopper. Uh, the yellow quill, George Kuhnberg's yellow quill, did very well as a sunken grasshopper. Uh, but you could, you know, find a surface one, too, and then a streamer of some kind. But that has changed uh, uh, because of a river runs through it. The uh, Blackfoot River now is heavily, heavily used. There are maybe 50 to 100 boats that go down a section wow. in a day at, at the height of the season. So the fish now see an awful lot of flies, and they have gotten much pickier than they're they smarter. used to be. Uh, yeah, they're educated. You know, we talk about the East Coast fish uh, being the ones with PhDs, but I'll tell you that they're into the graduate school uh, on the Blackfoot and other Western rivers right now. So, John, I hope you'll appreciate this. We've we've sort of geeked out for your visit on the show today. We have uh, we have probably a hundred and fifty. Uh, wet and 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 uh, dry. and dry flies. We have probably uh, five thousand dollars worth of of rods. Uh, Eb, tell us, tell John what we have here uh, going on. John, when I found out that uh, you were going to be on the show, the first thing I did was I I got your book. Uh, oh, good and, man, and, that's and, that's and read it. Uh, I grew up in Michigan fishing <laughs> on. Not the, everyone starts that way. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up in Michigan fishing on the Osaba River. Ah. And we had a cabin on a stretch called the Holy Waters. And and that's where I did the majority of my fishing growing up. Uh, you know, I, I was in your book, uh, first few pages, you're talking about, in the very beginning, you're talking about uh, landing the big fish right. on a Winston fly rod. Right. So Bruce is saying, you know, is that a, is that a good rod? So I brought my Winston in <laughs> to show him. Show off. Well, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably have one or f 25 fly rods, uh, you know, and it seems like I'm always trying to find the next best one. I've, I've got a double lot that I use up at uh, uh, Rose Canyon Lake for really, really small fish. But I also brought in uh, my bamboo fly rod. And I got to tell you, the way you describe things in your book is just it, it just beautiful. It, it's, it's poetry. Uh, fishing a bamboo rod... I have to tell you, there is such a difference between fishing that versus the modern rods. The compound rods, yes, yeah, there absolutely. is a tremendous difference. And uh, it is not always advantageous, but it is uh, very real. I've got a couple of bamboo rods that I use, and you know the rod does a lot of the work uh, with bamboo. You kind of have to adjust to it. 
with the compound rods, they adjust to you. You know, they'll do what right. you ask them to do. Uh, but the bamboo has its own character, a very particular character, and you have to kind of follow it. And when you do that, everything's fine. You know, if you try to force things and uh, override, you can get in a lot of trouble. You know, and that's interesting. Each bamboo rod that I have fishes different. Right. But you can get, and it can, you know, but the uh, compound rods, they are, they're all similar. And I was telling Bruce, you know, fishing the two different rods, fishing a compound rod, it, it's, if you put it in terms of wine, it's like a zen, you know, it's big, it's bold, it's in your face. A bamboo rod is more like a Bordeaux. It's very soft and I'm not going to say forgiving, but it's, it's, it's gentle. It's more delicate. Right. You have to be in tune with it, much more so than a compound. But, you know, if you've got a Winston, uh, I, mean, I think they're beautiful rods. Uh, they have that soft-ish yes. tip on them, but the rest of them is a pretty strong rod. It's a pretty fast rod. You can throw a lot of line with them. It isn't like you're relegated to 65-foot cast. If you want to go out there and be a hero and throw it 85 uh, <laughs> right. feet, you can go ahead and do that. It'll, uh, it'll handle it. So, John, describe Sealy Lake and your family camp there. Well, we have a cabin there that uh, is 100 years old, the lease is, yeah. 100 years old uh, as of August 8th of this year. Mm. And my grandfather and my dad and my Uncle Paul and my grandmother built it uh, starting in the 1920s. And it took a num- number of years to do the whole uh, compound. One of the oldest buildings there is a, uh, an ice house, a former ice house. Uh, what they would do is uh, a neighbor would go out with a, horses and a sledge in the winter, cut blocks of ice from Sealy Lake and bury them in the sawdust. Then we'd come for our summer visit and dig them out. Once you had electricity, you didn't need that anymore. So we uh, turned it into a warehouse. The structure you know, got damp from the salt, wet sawdust and general neglect. <laughs> and I remember standing there in the 1960s, with my dad, and him saying, boy, this thing is starting to fall apart. I don't know whether we should you know, try to restore it and bring it back or whether we should just let it go and tear it down. This is, what, 60 years ago. This year, we decided we were going to restore it and got a lot of people interested in it, um, including the Historical Society in Sealy Lake. It apparently is the last one in the whole region. I mean, ice houses weren't great huge monumental structures they were throw-ups and when you didn't need them anymore you generally tore them down uh we have about the last one so we are hoping to get uh, some grants to bring this thing back and whether we do that or not we were we're going to bring it back uh we've had people come out and look at it Uh, one guy who does the restorations in yellowstone park and glacier national park and they say yeah boy this is really worth while uh, doing, bring it back. So maybe you need to the call the building there. Maybe you need to call the main cabin masters. You know that show on TV about those guys that uh, that uh, update uh, main camps for different families. Well, um, I have to tell you a, a story. Our, our two sons, my wife and I, have watched the movie A River Runs Through It about fifty times. And <laughs> when we run into it on cable, did you like it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we hated it. That's why we watch it to the to the very conclusion every time uh, we do uh, tune in. So your father Norman wrote that book forty five years ago. You've written many nonfiction books about wildfires in the West. You're obviously a, you know, a very, very well-established, well-respected journalist. You described Home Waters not as a sequel and not as a memoir, but as a chronicle. Talk about that. 
Well, it's a people want to call it a memoir, and they want to say that it's the backstory uh, to A River Runs Through It. And, and I prefer to call it a companion to A River Runs Through It and to call it a chronicle, because it covers over two centuries. It's not my memoir. I've got some of me in there, but I'm not the only character. In some ways, I'm not even the main character. Maybe the cabin at Sealy Lake is the main character. Maybe the Blackfoot River is the main character. But it starts and goes back to 1806. When Meriwether Lewis and a small party went through the Blackfoot Valley and became the first uh, Europeans uh, to be in that part of the world. Uh, and then it moves forward to today and even beyond today and kind of casts forward. So, as you know, what have we done to the Blackfoot? What have we done to these rivers by overusing them? Uh, we're not addressing that issue the way we should. Uh, and I'm hoping that that is one of the effects uh, of the book. My dad's book, A River Runs Through It, opened up Montana and changed the whole face of Montana. And in some ways, the whole face of fly fishing uh, internationally, as well as in the United States. What I'm hoping my book does is say, okay, we've done that. We're all out there fishing like crazy, but there are too many of us <laughs> on the rivers. It doesn't mean you should go play croquet, but we've got to start looking at sensible restrictions on some of these heavily used waters. Otherwise, the kind of experience that I had and my father had, and his father before him, is, has totally vanished. It is impossible to recreate that yeah. with that kind of use. So if you want to keep the spirit of this thing, uh, it's time to settle in here and do some work. You know, you talk about, uh, near the end of the book, you talk about the dams being torn down to restore the waterways, and the last one was torn, uh, finished in, what, 2020, I think? I'm going from memory here. Uh, that's correct, I think. Let's not get hung up on a, okay. on a year. But, but, but the, you, there were two dams. One was the Mike Horse Dam at the Headwaters, which was an old mining uh, dam. And that blew out a long time ago in the, 90, in the oh, I don't know, 80s, 70s. But the dam at the uh, confluence of the Blackfoot and the Clark Fork uh, was removed after A River Runs Through It came out. And A River Runs Through It was kind of the precipitating uh, power behind that. People wanted to open up the Blackfoot River to the way it had been originally so that fish could go up there and spawn. And I will swear to you that that big rainbow that is the centerpiece of yes. the home waters uh, spent time in the Clark Fork River <laughs> because we didn't have fish that big, rainbow that big, uh, bull trout that big, right. and maybe browns. But you didn't have rainbow that big uh, when I was a kid. I, had, I have never before or since seen a rainbow that large uh, in the Blackfoot River. And I think it's because they took that dam out at the confluence, and the fish that were in the Clark Fork could get up there the way they normally did, the way they did before there was a dam, yeah. uh, and spawn and spend part of their lives there. One of the things you talk about in the book also is uh, keeping the mining company out of there so it won't dump uh, toxins into the waterways. Well, it did. You know, the Macquarie Dam at the, at the headwaters uh, had a lot of toxins in it. And when it blew out uh, from natural causes or unnatural, depending on how you look at it, uh, it flooded the Blackfoot with uh, chemical and, uh, uh, and mining waste. Cadmium was the main culprit. And for a couple of years when that happened, I mean, it was in the 70s, uh, we did not fish the Blackfoot. Uh, you just stayed away from it because the fish were poisoned. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of that has either swept through now and gone downstream or is in the bottom of the, of the river and is covered over and it is no longer toxic. And also, we don't keep the fish anymore and eat them, uh, which we used to. Uh, it's now catch and release for right. almost all the way. 
uh, and it's not a source of, of protein that it once was. So, John, why do you think it is that Americans still continue to be so interested in your family? That's a really good question. I, as I said, I've done a lot of book flogging in the last month, and the thing that hits people about the book, you know, we've talked about nothing but fishing, is they say, John, you know, the 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 subtitle is a chronicle of family and a river. It's all family. It's all about family. It's about how family tries to get together and tries to keep itself going in America, where it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, my family is all the way from Alaska to Los Angeles to the Midwest to the East Coast. We're spread out all over the place. But we had this cabin that we all came back to, and it worked for my father and his father. So it's worked for, well, we've now got five generations of McLeans there, and it holds us together. And people respond to that. They respond to having had a tragedy in the family, the way we did with the murder of my Uncle Paul. You'd be surprised how many people have siblings, brothers, or sisters uh, who are similar in behavior uh, to Paul. And I hear their stories, and they're so deeply sad. Mm. So beyond being able to be comforted, except they read A River Runs Through It, and suddenly they realize, my... I'm not alone. Mm. There are many people who have gone through this kind of very painful experience that doesn't end. They've lost a sibling. They offered something of themselves to the sibling that was refused. They offered the best of themselves. Mm. And they went off and died, (laughs) Uh, committed suicide. Uh, In Paul's case, he was murdered or just are lost uh, to alcohol and drugs. It's a very common thing. And to have survived that as a family... And to have raised it from isolated sorrow to a group gathering, there are a lot of people involved in this, and then let's take it up to an eloquent level. Let's have a whole book about this that is beautiful. We keep using that word. Let's make it beautiful, because there is comfort in literature when you do that. And I've seen that happen. I saw it happen this past month. I've heard that story several times from people this past month, and I talked to them about this. So you're not alone. There is reason for being encouraged. You're not not going to bring anybody back, but you tried your best, and you failed, but so have others. It isn't like you're some bad person. It's like this is a pattern out there. So, John, and we can survive it. John, we know how the movie portrayed your family members. Can you provide your own personal character sketches of your father Norman, and 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 your uncle Paul, and your grandparents from us, from from what you know, from your experiences? I know I know you, you never met uh, your uncle Paul, but what 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 you experienced through your through your family about him as well. Well, Lord, I've lived with Paul my entire life. Um, and that's, that and you that's, don't have to have met somebody to know them. Yeah, um, and, and that speaks to what you were just talking about, doesn't it? From the shirt in the back of the drawer. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Good for you. Yes, you picked that up. Uh, I found a fishing shirt of his in the back of a drawer at the cabin when I was a kid and put it on, and I have been wearing him ever since in mm. one form or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the family was... Uh, a family that brought a kind of gentility to the frontier 
And that doesn't mean that they were above it all or that they were incapable of uh, connecting with frontier values and ways. Uh, On the contrary, uh, my grandfather, for example, was a very fine hunter and provided for his family in part by hunting and fishing. Uh, He was a Presbyterian minister. The Presbyterian Church in Missoula was, was and is uh, a very powerful organization and successful organization. Uh, one of his best friends was the great architect, A.J. Gibson, uh, who was a parishioner there uh, and who built and uh, designed uh, many of the very fine neoclassical buildings uh, that are in Montana to this day. Uh, so th- there was this double kind of life that you were educated, uh, you were part of the elite. Uh, but when hunting season came along, you got down your rifle and uh, went out and shot a deer or a bear uh, or whatever. Ab's uh, nodding his head up and down as yeah. you say that. Yeah. So that made them both uh, literary and tough. And that was what my father always talked about when he talked about himself. You know, he was somewhere between being his father's tough guy son and his mother's uh, flower boy for the church. And putting, trying to put those two together <laughs> takes you a lifetime. And they don't mix all that well all the time. Well, you painted a wonderful picture of how their parents influenced them and your parents influenced you. And one of the things that I found interesting, you know, right in the first very, you know, 10% of the book, you, you reference... Uh, your father's opening line in in the in the book, you know, in our family, there's no clear line between religion and fly fishing, and it seems as though you take that theme throughout your entire book as well, to the point of where when you and your dad are fishing at you know in towards the end of the book, you talk about how you went to find your father, and there he is, arms you know spread open wide, looking at the wonderful sky and just standing there. Yes. And standing there, and standing there. It wasn't like I came upon him, startled him, and he stopped. It was like he was attached to the sky and knew I was there, but it was a form of communication and of communion. Uh, And it wasn't the only time that kind of thing ever happened. He broke away from his father's Christianity, which was a particular 19th century Victorian uh, Presbyterian Christianity. But uh, a river runs through it. When you read it, uh, he, he didn't break away from religion. We had a very dear friend, Father Peter Powell, an Episcopal priest and an expert on uh, Native American customs, religious customs. And uh, he read A River Runs Through It and said, I have never read anything so Christian hmm. uh, outside the Gospels. So was your, was your dad actually called preacher by his friends as portrayed in the movie? When he was a kid, yeah, he was, because <laughs> uh, he would do that. I mean, he would get up and declaim, and that's what he wanted to be. I mean, he wanted to be somebody who got up in front of a crowd and talked, and that's what he did. I mean, he loved being a teacher, and uh, in the method uh, that the University of Chicago used, it was not that much of a discussion. Uh, you would be called on, there would be questions, there would be some discussion. But it was a lot of a teacher in a medieval sort of classroom uh, standing in front of a class and semi-lecturing to them. Um, and he liked that. 
talk about the first time you fish with your father on the river. Oh, Lord, that's a, I'll tell you something about that story. I tell that story in the book. And uh, I used to wonder why it took my father so long uh, to write A River Runs Through It. He was 73 when it was published. You know, the guys talked about being a writer all his life. Why didn't he get around to it? Well, he tried before, and he didn't make it and so on, but he nailed it uh, with A River Runs Through It. Okay, fast forward to me. Uh, my book, Home Waters, came out when I was actually five years older than my father was at 73. And when I look at that story of the first time my father ever took me fishing and I caught a fish, I began to realize why it had taken him so long to write A River Runs to It, to get around to doing it. He tried to write the Paul story uh, many times before that and, and didn't do it. I tried to write that story of the first fishing trip over and over again. When I quit the Chicago Tribune 25 years ago and started being a writer and an author of books, I spent an awful lot of time at the cabin in Montana alone. One of the things I would do would be to go to the place where that trip happened and to look at it and to think about it and to experience it again in memory and to see what it was like in fact. It hadn't changed very much. Then I would go back to the cabin, and I would sit down to write the story. And I would look at what I'd written after a while and say, boy, that's really terrible. (laughs) That's bad writing. (laughs) And throw it away. When I came to write that story for Home Waters, it just flowed right out of me. I mean, it took a while to pull it all together because it's, uh, you know, that's what you do. You rewrite. But I had experienced the thing so often by going back there. Uh, I knew what it smelled like. I knew what the hail felt like. I knew what the rocks in in the stream looked like and how they had affected me at the time and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And it was there. There are times with a very personal story when it is necessary and it is even forced on you to refrain from writing it. Then there is a proper time to write it. And it'll come if you've done your work. If you've gone back and done your memory work and done your uh, thinking about it. And I think that's what happened to my, I know that's what's happened to my father with the Paul story. Right. That he well, tried again and again to write it and didn't do it. And finally, as he describes this, after he'd written all the other stories that are in The River Runs Through It, he sat down and he said, I haven't done it. I haven't written about Paul. I'm being too indirect. And that's something that he took with him his entire life, and uh, as did you. Could you talk about, uh, as a professional and a very accomplished reporter, how important was it for you to investigate your Uncle Paul's murder? And oh, we're down to our last two and a half minutes. a very minutes. long time. Uh, yeah, I'd, especially after the movie came out and the book came out, and they were not entirely factual. Uh, I found that a little bothersome, but even before that, uh, I had looked into it. When Paul's death was talked about in the family, it was in these kind of stutter steps. It was never a complete story. It was never, you never, nothing was ever fully explained to you, but there would be bursts of it. And I began to think when I was older, you know, what was the real story here? Now, what really happened? Uh, and it's a touchy business to do that. I did a last tour in Chicago. I was mostly in the Washington Bureau for the Chicago Tribune. But I did a last tour in Chicago in the 1980s. And I began interviewing people who had known Paul, including his former boss, 
at the University of Chicago um, Publicity Department. That was an interesting uh, little interview because my father was there at the time, and uh, talking about Paul was a real touchy thing. But we got it done, and we got done said what needed to be said. Uh, then, because I was eventually Paul's closest living relative, I had special access to documents you know, concerning his death. Yeah. And I collected those, and uh, collected clippings and this, that, and the other thing. So I had a pretty big file on Paul, and I had no intention of writing it. I didn't intend to write Home Waters. Uh, it wasn't something I've been waiting all my life to do. Um, it's something that happened when it was appropriate for it to happen, and when I was lucky enough to have a good editor who gave me a kick. Um, John, John, we're, we're going to have to leave it there today. I'm so sorry to do that to you. We're, we're we right could talk the, for hours on this. Uh, thanks for a great chat this afternoon. Insiders, go buy a copy of Home Waters, published by HarperCollins. Even for you millennials out there who it may is have a never seen A River Runs Through It, it's a great although read. you should have, Read Home Waters. If you want to understand life in the West in a very special place with a very special family at a very interesting time. So, um, Eb? Yeah, John, thanks again. We really appreciate that. Uh, beautiful book. Wonderful job. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you sometime again. Until next Saturday, this is Eb Wilkinson. And Bruce Ash. And uh, thank you for joining us. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street at seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street, open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time. With Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. IMUSWilkinson.com 777-1911 777-1911